Grace to you in peace and welcome. You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church in beautiful Roanoke, Virginia. My name is Ben Brannan, Associate Pastor for Youth and Young Adults. And each week it is our hope that from the pulpit, God will twist and mold our words to land upon the listener's ears in a meaningful way that will inspire faith, encourage hope, and cultivate love in action. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here with us. Please subscribe and share, and I pray that through our words, you may grow closer to God. Would you pray with me? Holy God, be present in this moment. Be present in the reading of Scripture and the proclamation of sermon. Be present enough that something might truly happen, a truth that is beyond our imagination. And grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We have two passages for today. One is from Mark and one from 1 Corinthians, and I hope I do a better job explaining the Corinthians passage here than I did there. It was like a gloss over, so we'll try that. Let your kids watch the sermon at home, and maybe they'll get something out of it. I don't know. What did you just say? We'll try this again. Well, our gospel reading today comes to us from the beginning of Mark. So far in the first 20 verses, we have Jesus' baptism. As the heavens are torn apart and the Spirit descends into him like a dove, Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tested. John's arrest happens, and then Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is near. And then we have the call of the first disciples who drop everything in an instant and follow. And that's Mark's gospel, a lot packed in in a short amount of time. And so now with four new disciples in tow, we come to our passage for today. Mark 1, verses 21 through 28. Listen for God's presence and listen for God's word. They, Jesus and the four disciples, went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then what there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. And they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And then from 1 Corinthians 8, Verses 1 through 3, now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by God. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. What you do reveals who you are. Walking to the synagogue one Sabbath day, I'm sure everyone who gathered did not suspect anything out of the ordinary. Ready for the same old routine, prayer, scripture, teaching, and then back home just in time for the game. As they sat in their assigned pews, I mean their seats, the routine began without a hitch. The prayer was lovely, a bit long. The children's sermon could use some work. (laughs) Then it was time for scripture and teaching. A stranger stood up and he began to teach. But this was something different. He spoke with authority. He spoke as if he were part of the word. Everyone was amazed. His teaching unsettled and excited them. They leaned in. They wanted more. Just as he finished teaching, a loud cry came from across the room. A man stood and asked this teacher, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, that is an odd question. But at least everyone there now knows the name of this new teacher. The man continued, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But I thought he just said his name was Jesus. The teacher, well, Jesus, because now we know his name, remained unmoved, unafraid, and rebuked him. The man fell to the floor, convulsed, and cried out loud, something happened. Everyone there began asking each other, what is this? A new teaching? A new authority that even the unclean spirits obey? This is Jesus' first public ministry act in the Gospel of Mark. The scene's powerful and conflated newness is recognition of the boundary-breaking reality that Jesus represents in that holy place at that holy time and sets up the ongoing truth that God's reign has broken in. And Mark's gospel invites us into that newness even now. But Ben, how does a first century exorcism speak to us? Well, I'll share a story. I meet with a group of colleagues once a month to explore scripture through a spiritual practice called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is a slow reading of Scripture that treats Scripture not as a text to be studied, rather as the living word that moves and touches and transforms. With each reading, there is an accompanied prompt and then followed by a time of silence to allow God's living word to speak to you. The Markan exorcism was our passage for Thursday. The first prompt is always what word or phrase sticks out or speaks to you or what image comes to mind. What image comes to mind today? Lectio is always about the now. One friend was caught by the words convulsing and crying with a loud voice. 
For the next reading, we focused on how that word or phrase or image makes you feel. My friend responded with the feeling of being worried about the man, a visceral bodily sensation to help or at least meet him where he's at. But he continued to say that during the silence that followed the reading, his worry moved to assurance. It was his feeling of inadequacy to be of any help against demons that caused him to worry, but it was Jesus who stood up against the demon. And because of that, the assurance came. With a puzzled yet amazed look on his face, he then told us a story. We have a neighbor of the church that has come to us several times, and today she made another visit. Not but Two hours before we met, this neighbor came to my friend's church because she was feeling something, feeling something and didn't know how to deal with it. The neighbor was visibly and vocally upset. You could even say she was convulsing and crying with a loud voice. My friend knows this neighbor and has had several conversations with her before. He walked her to her office to talk, hoping to de-escalate the situation and offer help. She was in pain. She was hurting. She was confused. She was possessed. My friend continued, it's so wild, this, this happening. And then we're here looking at this passage right now. Look, like, I don't think I did anything to help, much less exercise the demon. As they were talking in his office, he could see her begin to get upset again. He asked her to take some deep breaths with him and then followed up with, so tell me what's going on. The neighbor explained that she feels angry. It's an anger she just feels that boils up to a point where she doesn't know what to do, how to deal with it, or why it's there. She cannot control it. I feel like there is a demon inside of me. You might be sitting there thinking the same thoughts I had on Thursday hearing this story. And I can assure you they are the same thoughts my friend had in the middle of their interaction. A demon? Really? Those don't exist. Did Jesus believe in demons? If so, was he just as primitive in thought as we believe others to be when speaking about demon possession in the world? Or do we accept the fact of demon possession as being true in New Testament times and as being true still today? Jesus may or may not have believed in demon possessions. That is not the point. But what is evident in reading the story today is the fact that Jesus assumed the reality of the man to be true. As William Barclay puts it, it was real to the man and had to be treated as such or he could have never been cured. The reality of one person doesn't have to be shared or even believed for that matter to make it someone's truth. You see, sitting in my friend's office, the neighbor spoke her truth a truth that I am sure was hard to put into words, let alone say out loud. 
Her truth didn't make sense to my friends, certainly doesn't really make sense to me, but the reality of one person doesn't have to be shared or even believed for it to be someone's truth. And there are all kinds of truths that confront us daily that seem as hard to believe as demon possession. So what are we to do? This is where we can turn to Paul as an example. The Corinthian community faced a persistent debate about whether meat sacrificed to idols was clean or unclean. And if Corinthian Christians in that community were permitted to eat such meat. The debate was so invasive that Paul spent three chapters, eight, nine, and ten, parsing out his response. In short, Paul knows, as do other Christians in that community know, that because there is only one true God, all rituals of sacrifice to other gods and idols were meaningless. Thus, the meat offered as pagan sacrifice was no different. They have that knowledge, but Paul says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge in the face of those with a weak conscience can be demeaning, belittling, even harmful, and makes one seem rather arrogant. Paul's response is not at all about meat or even about acquiring knowledge. It is about love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's not about information. It's about transformation. It's about the concern you have for your siblings in Christ. Paul says, Food does not bring us closer to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or any better if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Well, weak conscience or not, for some of the Corinthian Christians, eating sacrificial meat is something hard to spiritually digest. That is their truth. Whether the Corinthian Christians who possess the knowledge, believe it or not, doesn't make it any more less or any more true. Paul is not asking those with a weak conscience to grow in knowledge. Paul asks those with knowledge to grow in love. But take care in this liberty, in this liberty of yours, that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The word translated liberty here is the same Greek word which is translated in the exorcism narrative as authority, exousia, liberty, authority, and can also mean freedom or privilege. Besides this shared word, these two passages don't seem to fit together, let alone connect to our context today. I mean, really, an exorcism and a debate about meat sacrificed to idols? Yet these passages illustrate the liberating power of love against evils of the world that divide and oppress. And it calls us to speak a healing and powerful word against such evil. There are demons, whether they be personal, communal, global, or even cosmic, there are demons that draw us away from Jesus. Yet through God's boundary-breaking power and love made known in Jesus Christ, we can stand up 
to the demons and be freed. How might we speak with authority to these demons just as Jesus did to the demon in the synagogue? Well, for starters, we can name them. We can acknowledge the truth of their reality. Thus, we recognize they exist. We name the demon of unbelief and we continue to name others we encounter. Racism, inequality, religious and ideological intolerance, classism, sexism, homophobia, ageism, violence at home and at school, bullying, poverty, greed, war, terrorism, globalization, information manipulation, media-infused fear. This is not an exhaustive list. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. We should do well to name not only our demons, but also our privilege. As a white, heteronormative male, I live a life of liberty. I hold, certain, I hold a certain level of authority through my education and my position. I have certain freedoms that I know everyone does not possess or experience. I am privileged. And many of you share the same liberties, authority, freedoms, and privileges to varying degrees. Privilege can blind us to the realities of others in a world where those in positions of power overlook the truth or in all honesty dismiss the truth of those less fortunate. We live in a world where the truth about the hardships of those around us seems so exaggerated that they can't be a reality. The difficulties of public transportation to and from work, the lack of access to food, not to mention quality food that families encounter daily, the challenges of sustainable housing because we can't think of any housing as affordable in the current market as home values and rent costs exponentially rise above income levels, the wage discrepancies based on gender and race and age, the inability of many to have affordable and reliable health care. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. But this is true whether we believe it or not, because it is true for someone. There are demons that continually possess us as an individual, as a community, as a nation, and as members of the human race, we can name them in order to claim authority and power over them. But then we must act. We can follow Jesus' lead and stand up against such demons and muzzle the shriek of their disturbance. We can follow Paul's advice and place love at the heart of our decision-making in order to build up the community as a whole. We can follow Jesus' lead and reveal to the world and all that is in it that God is a boundary breaker. That any boundary we try to put in place we think is in place, even those boundaries that we perceive to be impenetrable, God busts through them. And so we can stand and say, be silent. God is here. And God is right here. Even in the midst of all that possess us personally, depression, addiction, disease, God is here. Your God is here in your grief, in your sickness, 
in your attraction to other gods, your God is here. Your God is here in the picket lines for equal pay, in the walks and rallies for change, in the boardrooms and hearings to discuss policies for more inclusion, in school classrooms and PTA meetings, in free healthcare facilities and barrio teams offering medical care to the most impoverished in the community. Your God is here. Beloved, even as you stand and utter those words, God is here. You might echo the question the demon asked Jesus, what have you to do with us? And you might also join with those in the synagogue asking the question, what is this? What is going on here? How can this be? You voice the unbelief. You acknowledge the doubt. You name the despair and disappointment of life. And still you speak the truth. You speak your truth. That God is here. And then you act. Because the truth about love is made known in word and deed. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.